From New York, this is Democracy Now! I was hit in the head by a state trooper with a nightstick. I had a concussion at the bridge. My legs went out from under me. I felt like I was going to die. I thought I saw death. All these many years later, I don't recall how I made it back across that bridge to the church. John Lewis, the civil rights icon, longtime congressman, has died at the age of 80. We'll hear Lewis talk about being beaten almost to death on Bloody Sunday in Selma, Alabama in 1965, as well as his role organizing the Freedom Rides, the March on Washington, and his lifelong fight for voting rights. It is so important for people to understand, to know that people suffer, struggle. Some people bled and some died for the right to participate. You know, the, the vote is the most powerful, nonviolent tool that we have in a democratic society. John Lewis died on Friday, on the same day as another civil rights legend, C.T. Vivian. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once described Vivian as the greatest preacher to ever live. Nonviolent direct action is something we have brought to America, right? Nonviolent direct action has, uh, has no violence in it, right? It is not there to destroy, it's there to develop and build. And that's what we've been trying to do. Today, C.T. Vivian and John Lewis in their own words. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The Quarantine Report. I'm Amy Goodman. A record number of confirmed coronavirus cases were recorded around the world Saturday, with over a quarter of a million new cases reported first, according to the World Health Organization. The largest increases were noted in the U.S., Brazil, India and South Africa. Total confirmed cases now top 14.5 million, with over 600,000 deaths. Here in the United United States, which has by far the most coronavirus infections and deaths, cases are on the rise in at least 40 states. The situation remains especially dire in the south and west of the country. Kentucky, Louisiana, Oregon and South Carolina all set single-day records for new cases Sunday. Florida, one of the worst-hit states, again reported over 12,000 new cases on Sunday. In California, Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti said the city reopened too quickly and that new shelter-at-home orders are likely. In Georgia, Republican Governor Brian Kemp is seeking an emergency injunction to restrain Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms from speaking to the press. Kemp sued Mayor Bottoms last week in an effort to overturn her local mask ordinance. Bottoms has contracted COVID-19 herself. Governor Kemp's refusal to mandate mask wearing defies a scientific consensus on the effectiveness of mask coverings. Top U.S. infectious disease expert Dr. Anthony Fauci has urged state and local leaders to be as forceful as possible in getting their constituents to wear masks. Meanwhile, President Trump is reportedly trying to block billions of dollars for testing and contact tracing as part of an upcoming coronavirus relief bill, as well as funds for the Centers for Disease Control, the Pentagon and the State Department. 
On Friday, Democrats from the House Education and Labor Committee said the White House blocked CDC Director Dr. Robert Redfield from testifying before Congress on the issue of schools reopening in the fall. Speaking on Fox News Sunday, Trump again claimed the virus will disappear and repeated the false argument surging cases were simply a reflection of increased testing. This is Trump speaking to Chris Wallace. We have embers and we do have flames. Florida became more flame-like, but it's, uh, it's going to be under control. During his interview, Trump also called Dr. Fauci a little bit of an alarmist and refused to say whether he would accept the results of November's election if Joe Biden wins. John Lewis, the civil rights icon and longtime Congress member, has died at the age of 80. During the 1960s, Lewis arrested more than 40 times and was beaten almost to death in Selma, Alabama, during March for Voting Rights in March 1965. He helped found SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, marched side-by-side side with Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., organized the Freedom Rides, and spoke at the 1963 March on Washington. Lewis once said, quote, do not get lost in a sea of despair, be hopeful, be optimistic, our struggle is not the struggle of a day, a week, a month, or a year. It's the struggle of a lifetime. Never, ever be afraid to make some noise and get in good trouble—necessary trouble, he said. John Lewis served in Congress since 1987. For the rest of the broadcast, we'll be broadcasting the words an interview with John Lewis in this studio several years ago. John Lewis died Friday, the same day as another civil rights legend, C.T. Vivian, who passed away at the age of 95. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. once described Vivian as, quote, the greatest preacher to ever live. He was a leading proponent of nonviolent struggle, a close associate of Dr. King, and a leader in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. We'll hear C.T. Vivian as well in his own words at the end of the broadcast. In Oregon, tensions continue to flare in Portland as outrage mounts over violent attacks by militarized federal officers on anti-racist protesters. The U.S. attorney for the Oregon District on Friday filed a lawsuit and called for an investigation into unidentified federal officers who've been snatching protesters off the streets— into unmarked vans and detaining them. Oregon Senators Jeff Merkley and Ron Wyden are also demanding a probe and for federal forces to be removed from the streets. The nation's reporting Customs and Border Protection was responsible for one such arrest that was filmed and went viral last week. An internal CBP memo reviewed by the nation says federal agents will be deployed indefinitely in undisclosed locations. On Saturday, a group of mothers formed what they called a wall of moms outside a federal courthouse to help shield protesters from federal officers. This is one of the protesting mothers. Their actions are terrifying. I mean, we as a democracy, and um, we need to stand up. I'm 60 years old. I probably shouldn't be here in public, but this is beyond acceptable. The ACLU is suing the Trump administration for what it says are the unconstitutional actions of the federal agents. 
A prosecutor announced Friday he's dropping felony charges against scores of protesters who were arrested last week as they gathered at the Kentucky attorney general's home demanding justice and the police killing of Breonna Taylor, a black Louisville emergency medical technician who was shot by police in her own home in March. This comes as new information has emerged about Breonna Taylor's killing. Dispatch logs from March 13th show her body lay on the ground for 20 minutes and received no medical attention after she was shot at over 20 times. Her boyfriend, who was also in the apartment, said she coughed and struggled for her life for at least five minutes. One officer has been fired, but no charges have been filed. In Chicago, protesters are denouncing excessive police force after officers attacked a teenage activist Friday during a demonstration in which people attempted to topple a statue of Christopher Columbus in Grant Park. An officer punched 18-year-old Miracle Boyd in the face, knocking out several teeth. Boyd is a recent high school graduate and an organizer with the group Good Kids Mad City. Journalists also reported being mistreated by police officers who use chemical spray and batons on protesters. Police said 12 people were arrested. In Indiana, two white men who were caught on camera attacking a black man over July 4th weekend were charged Friday with battery, intimidation and other crimes. The men, Sean Purdy and Jerry Edward Cox II, were part of a group of five white men who pinned Vox Booker to a tree, beat him and threatened to lynch him. Booker was able to escape their clutches after passersby intervened. Booker revealed last week he tested positive for COVID-19. His lawyer said his attackers spat on him and yelled in his face. You can see our interview with Vox Booker, Human Rights Commissioner for Monroe County, at democracynow.org. The Pentagon's effectively banned the Confederate flag on U.S. military bases. A memo issued by Defense Secretary Mark Esper Friday does not mention Confederate flags directly, but calls on the military to reject divisive symbols and list the flags that are authorized. The memo did not address changing names of bases honoring Confederate leaders. Trump has threatened to veto the National Defense Authorization Act if it removes Confederate names from bases. On Sunday, Trump mocked the push to rename Fort Bragg, saying on Fox, quote, we're going to name it after the Reverend Al Sharpton. Trump also likened support for Black Lives Matter to support for the Confederate flag, saying they were both issues of freedom of speech. The new Pentagon policy also means Black Lives Matter and LGBTQ flags are likely no longer allowed on military bases. Heavy floods and landslides from monsoon rains have displaced 4 million people in India's northeastern state of Assam and in Nepal, with close to 200 reported deaths and dozens of people missing. This is a resident of Assam. This flooding comes every year. This year, it's the biggest one, so the roads have been submerged. How will people live? Many people are living on boats. Our houses have also been submerged. The devastating floods are also destroying wildlife and their habitats. As much as 95 percent of the Kazirazanga National Park may be underwater, and over 100 animals, including eight rare rhinos, have died in the floods. 
Turkish media is reporting rescue teams have pulled the bodies of 59 refugees from Lake Van in eastern Turkey following a shipwreck in late June. The boat was carrying up to 60 people three times over its capacity limit. At least five suspects have been detained over the deaths. Most of the refugees were believed to be from Pakistan, Afghanistan and Iran. In Honduras, three Garifuna land defenders are kidnapped over the weekend in the northern coastal town of Triunfo de la Cruz. Snyder Centeno, Milton Martinez and Suani Alvarez were all taken from their homes by heavily armed men in what local leaders say is the latest attack against the community by the government of Honduran President Juan Orlando Hernandez. Uh, Afro-Indigenous and Indigenous people continue to fight against mining and other extractive industries on sacred land. In more news from Honduras, the prominent journalist David Romero has died after reportedly contracting COVID-19 in prison. He was serving a 10-year sentence over so-called slander and defamation charges for his reporting exposing government corruption and possible links between drug traffickers and top military and government officials, including President Hernandez. Romero was the director of the media outlets Radio Globo and Globo TV. Back in the U.S. and Michigan, a hearing in a family court is scheduled today in the case of a 15-year-old student who was sent to prison for not doing her homework. The girl, known simply as Grace to protect her identity, has been in detention since mid-May after a judge ruled she violated probation by not completing her coursework online during the pandemic lockdown. Students have rallied in support of the teen, who they say was targeted because she's black. The Michigan Supreme Court has also said it will review Grace's case. In New York, Jabal Moman has been officially declared the winner of the congressional primary race against incumbent Elliot Engel Friday, putting an end to the 16-term run of the powerful chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Bowman ran on a Green New Deal, Medicare for All, and anti-racist platform. To see our interviews with Jabal Bowman, you can go to democracynow.org. The son of a federal judge in New Jersey has died after a gunman opened fire on their home in North Brunswick Sunday. Judge Esther Salas was unharmed in the shooting that killed her 21-year-old her 20-year-old son Daniel and critically injured her husband. The gunman was reportedly wearing a FedEx uniform when he approached Judge Salas's home. Last week, Judge Salas was assigned to a lawsuit brought by Deutsche Bank investors who accused the bank of making false statements about its anti-money laundering policies and failing to monitor high-risk customers including convicted sex predator Jeffrey Epstein who died last year. In 2011, Salas became the first Latina on the District Court of New Jersey. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg announced Friday she's undergoing chemotherapy treatments for a recurrence of her cancer. The cancer is in her liver. Ginsburg previously survived pancreatic, colon and lung cancer. Judge Ginsburg was hospitalized briefly last week for chills and a fever, but says it was unrelated to the cancer. In a statement, the 87-year-old Supreme Court justice said, I have often said I would remain a member of the court as long as I can do the job full steam. I remain fully able to do that, Justice Ginsburg said. <clears throat> 
And in labor news, organizers for the strike for black lives expect tens of thousands to walk out of work today in over 25 cities in support of the nationwide uprising against racism and police brutality. Oakland labor organizer and McDonald's worker Anjali Rodriguez-Lambert said, quote, Companies like McDonald's cannot, on the one hand, tweet that Black Lives Matter and, on the other, pay us poverty wages and fail to provide sick days and adequate PPE, she said. Workers from nursing homes, airports, fast food chains, farms and the gig economy are joining the nationwide day of action. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The Quarantine Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The nation is mourning the loss of civil rights icon 17-term Democratic Congress member John Lewis, whose legacy of freedom-fighting and justice-seeking stretched from the Jim Crow era to the Black Lives Matter movement. Lewis died Friday at the age of 80. He was diagnosed in December with pancreatic cancer. John Lewis was born in Alabama to sharecroppers. He went on to become the youngest of the so-called Big Six, who addressed the 1963 March on Washington was ultimately elected in 1986 to be the congressional representative for his home state of Georgia, a post he never left. During the civil rights movement, Lewis marched side by side with Dr. Martin Luther King, helped found and served as chair of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and helped organize the Freedom Rides. He was arrested more than 40 times protesting segregation. As a mentor to those who followed in his footsteps, Lewis was known for encouraging them to, quote, get in good trouble, necessary trouble. In an interview last month, Lewis said the video of George Floyd's death at the hands of Minneapolis police was, quote, so painful, it made me cry, he said, and that he was inspired by how it had sparked a new movement to end racial injustice. Congressmember Lewis made his final public appearance in June at the street near the White House that's now named Black Lives Matter Plaza, where the words Black Lives Matter are painted in 35-foot yellow letters. Former President Barack Obama said Saturday he hugged Lewis at his inauguration in 2009 and, quote, told him I was only there because of the sacrifices he made. Meanwhile, President Trump waited more than 14 hours to tweet, after he had tweeted some 40 times, that he was, quote, saddened by Lewis's death. Flags have been lowered to half-staff at the Capitol and the White House and in Atlanta, where Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms ordered the flags lowered to half-staff indefinitely. Well, today we bring you an extended excerpt of my interview in 2012 with Congressmember John Lewis. He walked into our studio alone here in New York City after the release of his book, Across That Bridge, Life Lessons and a Vision for Change. I began asking Congressmember John Lewis about the Selma to Montgomery march he helped lead in 1965 as a 25-year-old man when he was almost beaten to death by police on what came to be called Bloody Sunday. On March 7, 1965, a group of us attempted to march from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama, to dramatize to the nation that people wanted to register to vote. One young African-American man had been shot and killed a few days earlier in an adjoining county uh, called Perry County. This is in the Black Belt of Alabama, the home county of Mrs. Martin Luther King, Jr., the home county of Mrs. Ralph Abernathy, the home county of Mrs. Andrew Young. And because of what happened to him, 
we made a decision to march. In Selma, Alabama, in 1965, only 2.1% of blacks of voting age were registered to vote. The only place you could attempt to register was to go down to the courthouse. You had to pass a so-called literacy test. And they were told people over and over again that they didn't or couldn't pass the literacy test. On one occasion, a man was asked to count the number of bubbles in a bar of soap. On another occasion, a man was asked to count the number of jelly beans in a jar. There were African-American lawyers, doctors, teachers, housewives, college professors flunking the so-called literature test. And we had to change that. So we sought to march. And we got to the top of the bridge. We saw a sea of blue, Alabama state troopers. And we continued to walk. We came within hearing distance of the state troopers. And a man identified himself and said, I'm Major John Cloud for the Alabama State Troopers. This is an unlawful march. It will not be allowed to continue. I give you three minutes to disperse and return to your church. And one of the young people walking with me, leading the march, a man by the name of Jose Williams, who was on the staff of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., said, Major, give us a moment to kneel and pray. And the Major said, Troopers, advance. And you saw these guys putting on their gas masks. They came toward us, beating us with knife sticks and bull whips, tramping us with horses. I was hit in the head by a state trooper with a knife stick. I had a concussion at the bridge. My legs went out from under me. I felt like I was going to die. I thought I saw death. All these many years later, I don't recall how I made it back across that bridge to the church. But as I got back to the church, the church is full to capacity. More than 2,000 people on the outside trying to get in to protest what had happened on the bridge. And someone asked me to say something to the audience. And I stood up and said something like, I don't understand it. How President Johnson can send troops to Vietnam, but can I send troops to Selma, Alabama to protect people who only desire to register to vote? The next thing I knew, I'd been admitted to a local hospital in Selma. Explain that moment where you decided to move forward, because I don't think the history we learn records those small acts that are actually gargantuan acts of bravery. Talk about—I mean, you saw the weapons the police arrayed against you. What propelled you forward, Congressmember Lewis? Well, my mother, my father— my grandparents, my uncles and aunts, and people all around me had never registered to vote. Uh, I've been working all across the South. The state of Mississippi had a black voting age population of more than 450,000, and only about 16,000 were registered to vote. On that day, we didn't have a choice. I think we had been tracked down by what I call the spirit of history, and we couldn't, we couldn't turn back. We had to go forward. Uh, we became like trees planted by the rivers of water. We were anchored. And I thought we would die. I first thought we would be arrested and go to jail. But I thought it was a real possibility that some of us would die on that bridge that day after the confrontation occurred. I thought it was the last protest for me. But somehow, in some way, um, you have to keep going. You, you go to a hospital, you go to a doctor's office, you get mended, 
and you get up and try it again. So what was the next act you engaged in? Well, we continued to organize, continued to try to get people registered. We went to federal court and testified to get an injunction against Governor George Wallace and Alabama state troopers. And the federal court said that we had a right to mourn from Selma to Montgomery. President Johnson spoke to the nation and condemned the violence in Selma, introduced the Voting Rights Act, and that night he made one of the most meaningful speeches that any American president had made in modern time on the whole question of civil rights and voting rights. He condemned the violence over and over again. And near the end of the speech, he said, and we shall overcome, we shall overcome. We call it the we shall overcome speech. I was sitting next to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as we listened to President Johnson. I looked at Dr. King. Tears came down his face. He started crying. And we all cried a little. But we heard the president saying we shall overcome. And Dr. King said, we will make it from Selma to Montgomery, and the voting rights act will be passed. Two weeks later, more than 10,000 of us, people from all over America, started walking from Selma to Montgomery. And by the time we made it to Montgomery five days later, there were almost 30,000 black and white citizens, Protestant, Catholic, Jewish men, women, young people. It, it was like a holy march. And the Congress debated the act, passed it, and on August 6, 1965, President Lyndon Johnson signed it into law. We'll be back with my interview with 17-turn Congress member John Lewis in 30 seconds. We shall not, we shall not be moved We Shall Not Be Moved by Mavis Staples. This is Democracy Now!, The Quarantine Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we continue to remember civil rights icon, 17-term Democratic Congressmember John Lewis, who died Friday at the age of 80 of pancreatic cancer. He appeared on Democracy Now! in 2012. Talk about taking part in the Freedom Rides. On May 9, 1961, my seatmate, a young white gentleman, we arrived at the Greyhound bus station in Rocky, South Carolina. We got off the bus. What were you doing there? We were testing the facilities. The lunch counters, the waiting room, the restroom facility. During those days, the station was marked white waiting, colored waiting, white men, colored men, white women, colored women. And we were following a decision of the United States Supreme Court, ban and discrimination, a segregation, and intrastate travel. And when we started to enter the so-called white waiting room, we were attacked by a group of young white men, beaten and left in a pool of blood. 
the local police officials came up and wanted to know whether we wanted to press charges. We said no. We believe in peace. We believe in love and nonviolence. Years later, to be exact, 48 years later, Mr. Wilson and his son came to my office in Washington and said, Mr. Lewis, I'm one of the people that beat you. Will you forgive me? I apologize. His son had been encouraging his father to do this. His son started crying. Mr. Wilson started crying. He hugged me. His son hugged me. I hugged them both back. And all three of us stood there crying. Um, that's what the movement was about, to be reconciled. When we hear about voting rights today, we don't hear about these struggles that you and so many others that you led went through 50 years ago. That's why it is so important for people to understand, to know that people suffered, struggled. Some people bled and some died for the right to participate. You know, the, the vote is the most powerful, nonviolent tool that we have in a democratic society. It's precious. It's almost sacred. We have to use it. If not, we will lose it. A few years after that, two years after you had your head slammed in and so many others were beaten in Montgomery, um, was the 1963 March on Washington. Dr. King spoke, and you also spoke. I want to go to a clip of that moment. Those who have said be patient and wait, we must say that we cannot be patient. We do not want our freedom gradually, but we want to be free now. We are tired. We are tired of being beaten by policemen. We are tired of seeing our people locked up in jail over and over again. And then you holler, be patient. How long can we be patient? We want our freedom and we want it now. We do not want to go to jail. But we will go to jail if this, this is the price we must pay for love brotherhood and true peace. I appeal to all of you to get in this great revolution that is sweeping this nation. Get in and stay in the streets of every city, every village and hamlet of this nation until true freedom comes, until the revolution of 1776 is complete. We must get in this revolution and complete the revolution. Or in the Delta of Mississippi, in Southwest Georgia, in the Black Belt of Alabama, in Harlem, in Chicago, Detroit, Philadelphia, and all over this nation, the black masses are on the march for jobs and freedom. We're talking about slow down and stop. We will not stop. All of the forces of Eastland. Barnett, Wallace, and Thurman will not stop this revolution. If we 
do not get meaningful legislation out of this Congress, the time will come when we will not confine our march into Washington. We will march through the South, through the streets of Jackson, through the streets of Danville, through the streets of Cambridge, through the streets of Birmingham. But we will march with the spirit of love and with the spirit of dignity that we have shown here today. By the forces of our demand, our determination, and our numbers, we shall splinter the segregated South into a thousand pieces and put them together in the image of God and democracy. We must say, wake up, America, wake up, for we cannot stop, and we will not and cannot be patient. That remarkable speech that you gave on August 28, 1963, you were the youngest speaker at the March on Washington. You spoke before Dr. King. I spoke uh, number six. Dr. King was the last speaker. He spoke number 10. Um, that day when Afel Randolph introduced me and he said, and I present to you, young John Lewis, national chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. I looked to my right. I saw many of the young people sort of cheering me on. I looked to my left, and I saw young people up in the trees trying to get a better view of the crowd. Then I looked straight ahead, and I said to myself, this is it. I must do my best, and that's what I tried to do. When I was working on the speech, I was reading a copy of the New York Times, and I saw a group of black women in Southern Africa carrying signs saying, one man, one vote. So in my March on Washington speech, I said, one man, one vote is the African cry. It is ours, too. It must be ours. And that became the rallying cry for many of the young people in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And yet you had to change that speech that you gave on that day. I was asked to change the speech. Some people thought the speech was too radical, uh, too militant. Uh, I thought it was uh, a speech for the occasion. It represented the people that we were working with. Some people didn't like the use of the word revolution or the use of the phrase black masses. A. Philip Randolph came to my rescue and said, there's not anything wrong with the use of revolution. I use it myself sometimes. It's not anything with black masses. So we kept that part in the speech. But near the end of the speech, I said something like, if we do not see meaningful progress here today, the day may come when we will be forced to march to the South the way Sherman did, nonviolently. And people thought we could make a reference to Sherman. And so we deleted that. I'd like to play Danny Glover reading the excerpts of the speech that you didn't give. To those who have said, be patient and wait, we must say that patience is a dirty and nasty word. Mm -hmm. We cannot be patient. We do not want to be free gradually. We want our freedom and we want it now. We cannot depend on any political party, for both the Democrats and the Republicans have betrayed the basic principles of the Declaration of Independence. We won't stop now. 
all the forces of Eastland, Barnett, Wallace, and Thurman won't stop the revolution. The time will come when we will not confine our marching to Washington. We will march through the South, through the heart of Dixie, the way Sherman did. We shall pursue our own scorch earth policy and burn Jim Crow to the ground. Uh, John Lewis, you also said a part that didn't get included um, was, in good conscience, we cannot support the administration's civil rights bill, for it's too little, too late. There's not one thing in the bill that will protect our people from police brutality. I thought, and I believe, that the proposed civil rights bill was not enough. President Kennedy took the position that if a person had a sixth-grade education, that person should be considered literate and should be able to register to vote. Those of us in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee took the position that the only qualification for being able to register to vote in America should be that of age and residency, nothing more or anything less. We wanted a much stronger bill, but the whole idea of the march was not to support a particular piece of legislation. It was a march for jobs and freedom. It was a coalition of conscience to say to the Congress and say to the President of the United States, you must act. We didn't think that the proposed bill was commensurate to all of the suffering the beatings, to the jailing, to the killing that had occurred in the South. Just before Malcolm X was assassinated, John Lewis met with him in Africa. They spent several days together. I asked John Lewis where they met, what they talked about. We uh, met Malcolm in Nairobi, Kenya, at the New Stanley Hotel. He happened to be staying there. We didn't know he was staying there. And we so stand there. We were on our way to Zambia for an independence celebration. And we had an opportunity to talk and chat with him about what was going on uh, in America. And I think at that time, Malcolm was seeking to find a way to identify with the Southern Civil Rights Movement. He um, wanted to be helpful, wanted to be supportive. And as a matter of fact, he came to Selma. He came to Selma February the 14th, 1965. And we were in jail, including Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And the local authority refused to let him come and meet with us. He spoke at the Brown Chapel AME Church with Mrs. King to a group of high school students. And seven days later, he was assassinated. On February 21st, 1965, he was gunned down. I would never forget it because February 21st is my birthday. And I was in a car on my way from southwest Georgia. You were 25 years old? 25. And I was going from southwest Georgia through Atlanta back to Selma when we heard that he had been shot. I came to New York, attended the service for him. What is your assessment of the significance of Malcolm X? I think Malcolm played a major role in helping to educate, inform, 
and dramatize the need for mass movement. People read about him. Many of the young people, black and white, read his story. Many did not agree necessarily with his techniques as tactics. But if Malcolm had lived, I am convinced that he would have been part of the southern nonviolent wing of the civil rights movement. In his relationship with Dr. King, what did Dr. King think? Uh, I remember Malcolm being in the hotel before we even saw him in, in, in Kenya, the night of the March on Washington. The, the, the evening before the March on Washington, he was at the Hilton Hotel in, in Washington. Now, he didn't like the way the march turned out, because he said it was like a picnic, uh, and that it was not strong enough. And he wasn't invited to speak. He was not invited to speak. We, I didn't have anything to do with that decision. After the Civil Rights and the Voting Rights Act were signed, Dr. King increasingly started speaking out against the Vietnam War. Um, his inner circle saying, don't give that speech at Riverside Church April 4th, 1967, a year to the day before he was assassinated in Memphis, uh, the why I oppose the war in Vietnam speech. You've got the president of the United States behind you. You got him to sign the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act, they said to Dr. King. Um, don't take him on in a war that is not ours. Yet he defied them and said it is. Were you a part of that circle? What position did you take, John Lewis? I supported the position of Martin Luther King, Jr. as chair of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. During that time, we had already taken a position against the war in Vietnam. So many other young people in SNCC, so many other young people that we were working with all across the South were being drafted and going off to Vietnam. So we came out against the war in January 1966. But I was there at Riverside Church on the night of April 4th, 1967, when he spoke. And I think that speech is one of the greatest speeches. A lot of people speak about the march on Washington. It was a wonderful speech. But the speech against the war in Vietnam, Dr. King, he said, I'm not going to segregate my conscience from against violence at home. I'm against violence abroad. And he went on to say that America was the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. He was, he was a preacher. He was a prophet. Do you agree with him? I agree with him. That the U.S. is the greatest purveyor of violence? We have more. We spend hundreds and thousands, millions and billions of dollars on weaponry. We supply in the world. We sell arms to everybody. Dr. King was saying that we have to put an end to this madness. He was influenced by, by Gandhi. And Gandhi said it's nonviolence or non-existence. Dr. King went on to say we must learn to live together as brothers and sisters or we will perish as foes. He was saying in effect that we have enough bombs and missiles and guns 
to destroy the planet. You said it then, and it's still true today. And so today, the war in Afghanistan, the drone war that President Obama is conducting in Pakistan and Yemen and other places with the uh, kill list um, that uh, The Times called it, that he personally keeps and names the people he puts on the list. Your thoughts? Well, I think it's time for us to end in the efforts in Afghanistan. Um, we cannot justify the killing of people that we don't see, we don't know anything about them, or very little. War is not the answer. War is obsolete. It cannot be used as a tool of our foreign policy. It's barbaric. Someplace, somehow, people must come to that point and say, I ain't going to study war no more. Have you talked to President Obama about this? I have not had an opportunity, but I've spoken out on the floor of the House against the war in Afghanistan, as I did against the war in Iraq. You voted in three days after September 11, 2001, to give President Bush the authority to retaliate in a vote that was 420 to 1. You have described it as one of your toughest votes. Talk about how you decided to do that. I was very disturbed about what happened on 9-11. And when I look back on it, if I had to do it all over again, I would have voted with Barbara Lee. It was raw courage on her part. So because of that, I don't vote for funding for war. I vote against preparation for the military. I would never again go down that road. And what do you say to those who say, then, you're not supporting the military? You're not supporting the soldiers? I support the, the soldier, but I see um, young men in uniform. I say, thank you for your service. And I tell them, I want you, all of you to come home. I tell them to their face. I see them in the airports. I see them in Washington. I say, it's time for you to come home. How did you decide to go from activist, real street-fighting activist. You yourself weren't physically fighting, but you were being fought by the police every step of the way, to a Congress member. Talk about the moment you made that decision and the year you did. How old were you? I made the decision after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. and Robert Kennedy. I was with Robert Kennedy in Indianapolis, Indiana, on the evening of April 4, 1968, when I heard that Dr. King had been shot. I didn't know his condition until Robert Kennedy spoke at a rally that I was having to organize and said that Dr. King had been assassinated. I want to go to that clip. I have some very sad news for all of you, and I think uh, sad news for all of our fellow citizens and people who love peace all over the world. And that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis, Tennessee. That was Robert Kennedy in Indianapolis breaking the news to so many. John Lewis, you were there. I, I cried with so many other people. And I said to myself, we still have Bobby. 
I went back to Atlanta, attended the funeral with Robert Kennedy and hundreds and thousands of others. And after the funeral was over, I got back in the Kennedy campaign, went to Oregon, and later to California. The campaign for Bobby Kennedy with Cesar Chavez. It was a wonderful effort. We went all over Los Angeles, going into wealthy neighborhoods, knocking on doors, urging people to vote for Bobby. And that evening, the primary was over. Bobby Kennedy came up to me and said, John, I'm going downstairs to make my victory statement. Why don't you remain? I was in his suite with his sister, several other individuals, the brother of Meg Evers. And we listened to Bobby. And he said, on to Chicago. And moments, minutes later, it was announced that he had been shot, dropped to the floor, and cried and cried. I just wanted to get out of L.A. I got on a flight the next morning, flew to Atlanta. And I think I cried all the way from L.A. to Atlanta. And I came back to New York for the funeral. And before the funeral, I stood the night before as an honor guard with Reverend Ralph Abernathy. Then I rode the funeral train. The family asked me to ride with them from New York to Washington. In some place along the way, I felt that somehow, in some way, I had to try to pick up where Dr. King and Robert Kennedy left off. These were my friends. These were my heroes. These were two young men that had inspired me. And some of my friends started encouraging me to get involved in electoral politics, do more than just register people that I should run for office. And I made a decision years later to do it. Finally, at the end of Across That Bridge, your new book, um, you write, just as Gandhi made it easier for King, and King made it easier for Poland, and Poland for Ireland, Ireland for Serbia, Serbia made it easier for the Arab Spring, the Arab Spring made it easier for Wisconsin, made it easier for Occupy. Talk about these connections. I believe there is something in human history. I call it the spirit of history. It's like a spring, a stream that continue to move. And individuals and forces come along to become symbols of what is good, what is right, and what is fair. And that's why I wrote this little book to say to people that you too can allow yourself to be used by the spirit of history. Just find a way to get in the way. When I was growing up, my mother and father, my grandparents and great-grandparents would always tell me, don't get in trouble, don't get in the way. But I was inspired by Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks and others to get in the way, to get in trouble, good trouble, necessary trouble. And we all must find a way 
to have the courage to get in trouble, to do our part. Every generation must find a way to leave the planet, leave this little spaceship, Earth, this little piece of real estate, a little better than we found it, a little cleaner, a little greener, and a little more peaceful. I think that's our calling. We have a mission, a mandate, and a moral obligation to do just that. Congress member John Lewis speaking on Democracy Now! in 2012. He died Friday at the age of 80. To see the whole interview, go to democracynow.org. When we come back, we remember another civil rights icon, C.T. Vivian, who also died Friday. Now swing low, sweet chariot. Coming for the carry home. Swing low, sweet chariot. Coming for Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, sung by Sam Cooke. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman. The same day Congressmember John Lewis passed away, that was Friday, we lost another civil rights legend, Reverend C.T. Vivian. He died at the age of 95. Vivian was a leading proponent of nonviolent struggle. He was with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, close friend of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who once described him as the greatest preacher to ever live. In 2015, I spoke to Reverend Vivian outside the historic Brown Chapel A. Church in Selma, Alabama, on the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday. On that day in 1965, he was punched in the face by Dallas County Sheriff Jim Clark on the courthouse steps in Selma as he tried to escort a group of African Americans inside to register to vote. The punch was so hard, the sheriff broke his own hand. Reverend Vivian started by talking about the power of nonviolence and the continued fight for voting rights. Nonviolent direct action is something we have brought to America, right? Nonviolent direct action uh, has, uh, has no violence in it, right? It is not there to destroy. It's there to develop and build. And that's what we've been trying to do. At the core of that is, is an understanding of faithful life. Right. Do you think full voting rights have been achieved at this point? No, because America won't change that quickly. See, or if they had, have, they would have done it in 1776. <laughs> there is nothing we haven't done for this nation. We've died for it, huh? But uh, it's been overlooked what we've done for it. But we kept knowing the scriptures. We kept living by faith. We kept understanding that it's something deeper than politics that makes life worth living. What gave you the courage 50 years ago to stand up at the courthouse to make that walk? You can't keep anyone in the United States from voting without hurting the rights of all other citizens. Democracy's built on this. This is our faith. Mm-hmm. Huh? Uh, our grandmothers huh? uh, uh, and great-grandmothers 
taught us how to live, right? Even when they couldn't uh, uh, speak well uh, as long as what the society was concerned about. But they were telling us about is as old as, as the universe itself. Can you describe what happened to you, the violence against you, even leading up to March 7th, when you stood up for voting rights? It's, it's the understanding of nonviolent direct action. That's the change. Look, what we have to see beyond all things, that Martin King, right, was our leader. What we have and what was given to us from its very beginnings is an understanding that we could not win by killing. Uh, 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 light doesn't come because of darkness, all right? Uh, uh, we are here to change America and always have been. America sees it as they're changing us. Mm -hmm. But you see, when, when a Christian church exists that doesn't want to accept uh, 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 anybody but white people, right? Well, uh, 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 they've already denied the faith, all right? Uh, can you be a Christian and a racist at the same time? Uh, see, and we refuse to be racist, mm -hmm. right? We just want to simply tell uh, 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 America what their faith is about. America talks about democracy. But they've kept us from voting for years. And even when they give us the vote on paper, politically, they turn around and take away the important part of what we fought for and what they said they were giving. All right? Is that uh, the truth is that we have to work together to save ourselves politically, save ourselves spiritually, and save ourselves physically. We're not going to be able to do it until we listen to uh, uh, the faith without the hate. Uh, 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 when the preacher has to stand at the door and keep people out because of the color of their skin, something's wrong with their faith. Did you stand in front of uh, Sheriff Clark and get punched in the face? Well, yes, but that's not why I was standing there. <laughs> We're willing to be beaten for democracy, and you misuse democracy in the street. The point being is I was standing in front of him because we don't have to fear the opposition and we are willing to die for the freedom they say they have all right and when he attacked you especially for young people to understand your thoughts at the time what went through your mind is that that uh, the problem was him i wasn't the problem he was trying to get rid of us so that he could act as though that the problem was us problem is never the person that's being beat, all right? It's the person that doesn't have a reason to beat people and beats people, who hates people and have no reason for it, right? We've done nothing. What have we, what have we done to America that they should hate us so, right? Uh, 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 we haven't done it to America. America is, uh, uh, but you can state 30 or 40 things very quickly about what what American democracy 
uh, quote unquote, has done to us. And we were just trying to live for the faith, huh? Died in every war, every war, all right? And yet anybody who came here 10 minutes later was accepted. Civil rights legend C.T. Vivian. I interviewed him in 2015 in Selma, Alabama. Reverend Vivian died on Friday at the age of 95, his funeral scheduled for Thursday at Providence Baptist Church in Atlanta. Out of respect for Reverend Vivian, the Lewis family says it'll wait till after his services to announce their plans for Congressmember Lewis's memorial. To see the full interviews, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman.